0: Hello, uh, my name is Matt Moses and I have the privilege today of reading uh, scripture, Jonah chapter 1 verse 17 or chapter 2 verse 10. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice for you cast me into the deep into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me all your waves and your billows passed over me then i said i am driven away from you by from your sight Yet i shall look again upon your holy temple the waters closed in over me to take my life the deep surrounded me weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains i went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. My prayer came came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
1: Well, good morning. Welcome to Disciples Church. It's good to see, see you, good to be with you today. My name is Jonathan Mosher, and it's my uh, true privilege and honor to get, get to open up the word of God uh, with you and for you this morning. So if you're not already there in your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2 had a unique circumstance this week as I was prepping this sermon. Uh, you know, there's always the challenges that come along with prepping a particular sermon. There's the linguistic stuff, which is a challenge, uh, you know, trying to figure out what the uh, original author intended by specific phrases and looking at different translations and all those kinds of things. There's the difficulty of trying to find the thread in a particular sermon. What actually is the intent? of the portion of scripture that we're looking at this week, and then there's the challenges of using technology inherently, and one of the challenges that I ran into this week was every time I wrote the word Ninevites in my computer, it auto-corrected to 90s, and as a child of the 90s, that presents a very different question, because all of a sudden I'm reading through my notes, and I find questions like, how could God extend grace to the 90s? Could the 90s actually be saved? And this is an era in which people were wearing parachute pants and zubas and listening to boy bands. So it's a legitimate question, but it's not the one we're looking at today. We'll talk about the Ninevites instead. But if you remember last week as we began the study in the book of Jonah, we talked about the fact that this man named Jonah was a prophet. We find him mentioned other places in Scripture, namely in 1 Kings, I believe it's chapter 17, where he's referenced as the only other time in the Old Testament where Jonah is explicitly referenced, but what we said is that the word of the Lord had come to Jonah. That God Himself had spoken directly to this prophet of His to go to the Ninevites to declare, to declare the salvation that belongs to God Himself, to declare their own wickedness and God's pending wrath toward them. And Jonah, in hearing this, immediately responds with animosity. He hated the Ninevites. He hated everything about their culture, everything about their people, everything that they valued, their treatment of the Israelites. And so Jonah says, absolutely not. I'm having nothing to do with declaring God's grace or redemption to these people. I'm going the other way. And so he hops on a ship and starts heading out towards a town called Tarshish, literally the exact opposite direction of where Nineveh was located. He went down into the hole of the ship and went to sleep, and as he was down there sleeping, a great storm arose, the sailors, these seasoned veterans of the seas, began to fear for their own lives. They began to call out to the gods that they claimed as their own, hoping for some sort of generous treatment, and realizing that that wasn't coming, they figured out there must be something about what's happening on this ship that is grieving some god or another. So they run down. They find Jonah. They wake him from his sleep. They ask him what he did, and Jonah very quickly admits that he had been running from the Creator of land and sea, the God of the universe, the one true God of the Israelites. And immediately, the sailors are struck with terror. They ask him, what do we need to do to find salvation from this? And Jonah says, well, I want you to throw me into the sea, and as as soon as you throw me into the sea, you're going to find salvation granted from God Himself. And all of that leads up this morning to maybe the most memorable portion of one of the most famous stories in all Scripture. See, when people think about the story of Jonah, they usually don't think first about God's call on his life or even about his response in running from the Ninevites. What they think about is the great fish. It's the criticism of those who don't believe the stories of the Bible, it's the question of those that do believe in the Bible, and it's certainly a fantastic story in and of itself. And, there, and from that position of thinking about this fish, people begin to run through a gamut of ideas about the logistics of how this must have worked. I mean, how big was this fish that Jonah could be swallowed up and still somehow survive? What kind of fish was it? Was it a whale? Well, it can't be a whale. Whales are mammals, right? That wouldn't make sense. So how did Jonah survive in the belly of this fish for three days? How did he breathe? Are we meant to read this as a literal historical event or as an allegorical tale? And here's the funny thing about all of those musings. The irony is that the fish in this story is almost beside the point. Much like the movie Jaws, the creature that's mentioned in this passage is barely visible throughout the story. The author mentions this fish twice in passing without any real explanation or emphasis. He just states it as a matter of fact. And listen, this whole story is certainly a strange one. The detail included about this fish is certainly an unusual one, but to the extent that you struggle with believing the reality of the logistics of this story, you actually have a much bigger problem with the rest of the Bible if this is the thing that kind of sticks for you. Do you understand that we worship a God-man who never sinned in his 33 years of life before his death, was killed on a cross, and literally rose from the dead in a perfected body? So if God can handle the work of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then providing marine transportation for one of his prophets seems relatively straightforward. It's actually a pretty easy thing for God to accomplish. And so it is the author's belief, in the words of one commentator, that this miraculous event did occur, and he asks the reader to accept his testimony to that effect. So the question then becomes this, how can I actually say that it's almost besides the point of the story to spend any time talking about the fish? Because the main character of this story isn't the fish, and it's not even really Jonah the main character of this story is God Himself. And in the story of Jonah, as much as any other story in the Old Testament, we see God moving implicitly and explicitly to accomplish His will. And far more significant than the movement of any fish in this story is the movement of God's grace. Grace is that idea of unmerited favor. It's a word that we use all the time in our Christian context. It's a word that we throw out very easily without ever really considering what it means. But what a grace means with unmerited favor, it's the idea that God determines to set His love and affection on individuals, not based on anything they possess or anything that they've done, but solely by His own good and sovereign will. And what this story shows to us is that in a human sense, God's grace is wild and unpredictable. It can't be caught or, can, or contained. It can't be managed or harnessed. God's grace goes where we don't expect. It pursues the people that we think are least deserving. It rescues those who deserve wrath. It chooses the most unlikely candidates, in this case, a self-righteous, disobedient prophet and a violent, pagan nation. And the wonder of God's grace is that it reaches to the outermost, that there is no one so good that they are not desperately in need of his grace, and there is no one so evil that they are beyond the reach of God's grace. See, grace changes wanderers into worshipers. It transforms deserters into disciples. It makes misfits into ministers. It converts foes of God into friends of God. And it turns rivals into sons. And grace does so without offering any apology or condition. It risks offending the religious and the atheist, the churchgoer and the intellectual, the self-made men and blue bloods alike. So then, what is it that actually causes God's love to pursue whomever He wills? And do you understand that God actually answers that question for us, though it's an answer that we don't always appreciate? We find one such example of His answer to that question. What is it that causes God to love and pursue whoever He wills? We find the answer in Deuteronomy chapter 7. If you remember the context, God has just delivered the children of Israel from the slavery in Egypt, and Moses is now speaking to the people, and in Deuteronomy 7.7 he says this, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. In other words, Moses is saying to the nation of Israel, there is nothing special about you inherently. There's nothing great about you or impressive about you. There is nothing about you that deserved the love of God. You weren't a great nation or a great people. You weren't smarter or stronger or better than any other nation. In fact, you were insignificant. So then why did he love them? Notice what he says it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you. Verse 8, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. In other words, in the, in the words of the great Puritan Thomas Goodwin, the Lord loved you because he loved you. And for no reason else as is in you, but for this alone in himself and in his heart taken up towards you, he loved you merely because he loved you. That's his reason. And yet at times in our own lives, we take, we take unearned love for granted. And think about the foolishness and the arrogance of that perspective. To assume that the grace that God gives us, unearned on our behalf, unmerited on our behalf, is somehow still owed to us. We take it for granted, we run from its promises, and sometimes, even like Jonah, we resent when it's made available to those whom we despise. You see, the fish that swallowed up Jonah was an expression of God's grace. And I want you to see something in this text that is easy to miss. I want to answer, actually, a very obvious question, which is why did God even bother sending the fish? And there are all kinds of reckons and all kinds of reasons that people make for this. I mean, certainly he did it to preserve Jonah for his mission, but God could have just as easily called another prophet who wasn't disobedient and rebellious to declare this word to the Ninevites. He didn't need Jonah particularly. Certainly, God did it to show his power. It's an incredible, miraculous thing that God sends a fish to save Jonah's life and carry him back to shore. But, but what's actually more difficult? Causing a fish to swallow and preserve Jonah? Or granting eternal forgiveness and adoption to a city full of wicked people? See, what's truly incredible about the fish is that the Lord sent it as an answer to the prayers. Of wicked men. If you remember back to last week in chapter 1, verse 14, as the sailors begin to cry out to the Lord in this moment of actual worship, there's been a turning in their hearts towards God, and they say this, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They're saying, we understand that we have to throw Jonah overboard. He just told us that, but please don't let his blood lie on our hands. Please grant us some sort of absolution. Please intervene in a way that we couldn't expect or ask for. Here are these men who just moments earlier hadn't worshipped the one true God. In fact, they'd been calling out to their own pagan gods, hoping for some sort of intervention. And yet, in this moment, God chooses to answer their prayers in a profound and miraculous way. And we likewise see the prayer of Jonah in these verses. So look at chapter 2, verse 2. Jonah says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and He answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Now notice what Jonah says. He says, you rescued me out of the belly of Sheol. Sheol is this Old Testament expression of hell. It's a symbol of separation from God. Now, what's the significance of that? We have to remember who it is that's saying these words. Jonah was, in fact, a prophet. He knew the law well. He knew it inside and out. He knew the pages of the given Scripture of God. He knew, he knew the expectations of God. And in, and in this prayer that's recorded in verses 2-9 through nine of chapter 2, it is riddled with Scripture, especially the Psalms. So Jonah knows about the holiness of God. He knows about the law of God. He knows that he deserved the wrath of God for his disobedience. And yet, God cries out, or rather Jonah cries out to God in this moment, and listen, God hears him. How often do we take it for granted that God hears us? That he listens, that he answers, that he intervenes. Do you understand, brother and sister, that prayer is not an empty gesture of religious devotion? Prayer is the means by which we express our deepest thoughts and sorrows and desires and needs to the God of the universe. And He listens. But our tendency, probably all of us if we're honest, is to drift into one of two camps. We either drift into a very religious, man-centered view of prayer that uh, that, that says that God is ultimately some sort of celestial gumball machine, that if I do more good than bad, as long as I'm doing the right thing, I've now earned a token from God that I can exchange to receive things from Him. And though we would never be so crass or foolish as to actually say it that way out loud, how often have we prayed prayers like that? God, I'm doing the right thing and I'm trying to raise my kids the right way, why are they responding the way that they are? God, my family loves you, and yet we have this painful and difficult diagnosis. Where are you in this? God, I gave my life to you, and I didn't expect to experience pain like what I'm experiencing. You owe me. And the problem with that perspective, if it was true, is that it presumes that God owes you something. It means that God would no longer be operating out of his own sovereign grace or love toward us, but rather out of obligation. It's an attempt to manipulate God, to move his hand into doing things on our behalf and using those things as a means to our end. And what you've really done, if that's your attitude, is you've put yourself in the position of God Almighty. You've declared in no uncertain terms that you are at the top, that your desires, your perceived needs, your motivations, your pleasures, your expectations are at the top of every priority list, and that God's God's responsibility is to somehow help you accomplish your own goals for your own glory. And in so doing, you have really robbed yourself of the true joy that God intends for your life because you've limited your happiness and your successes to the outcomes that you can dream of and create rather than trusting those things to the God that created you and knows better than you what will bring about true and deep and meaningful satisfaction but understand, if you come to God solely for what He can give you, you will walk away empty-handed. God will not allow Himself to be the means to your end. But if you come to God for who He is, Trusting in His grace and His goodness, if you see Him as more beautiful and more worthy and more to be desired than anything else, He'll give you more than you could have ever imagined. And I don't just mean materially. What I'm saying is that He'll actually give you whole new desires, whole new purpose, whole new meaning for your life. Desires and purpose that find their fulfillment in Him. And so clearly, some of us have a tendency to lean towards that religious camp, God, you owe me. But others of us tend to view prayer as unnecessary and futile. Well, God's going to do what He's going to do, and so there's no reason for me to even bother with prayer. What's the point? If He's sovereign and whatever He declares is going to happen, then why do I even bother to pray? But hear me, God's sovereignty is not an excuse to ignore His instruction. And we see examples all through Scripture of ways that God uses prayer in conjunction with His own will to bring about powerful and incredible moves of His hand. Moses prays in the wilderness to deliver water to the parched people of Israel and God miraculously causes water to pour out of a stone. Elijah, in the confrontation with the prophets of Baal, calls out to God and fire rains down from heaven consuming the altar He made. David calls out to God and the giant Goliath is killed by the stone in his sling. The disciples pray and demon-possessed people are made free from the slavery and oppression of the wicked one. The church is instructed to lay hands and pray for those who are sick there is something mysterious, something inexplicable about the interaction of the prayers of God's people and the movement of his hand. And here in this text as Jonah is facing certain death, he calls out to God. See, we know how this story ends, but do you understand that when Jonah was thrown into that water, he thought that was it? And see, in this This in many ways gives us the deepest insight into Jonah that we see in this entire book because after experiencing the grace of God and saving him, as he's in the belly of the fish, Jonah composes this beautiful prayer that we find in verses 2 through 9. It reads, if you were to just sit down and read it, divorced from the rest of the context, it actually reads like a psalm, and that's because it actually is a psalm. It's written in that same way. It's written as a a poem. It's written as a song if you were to read it in Hebrew. And notice what he says beginning in verse 5. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the root of the mountains, the very base of the waters, he's saying. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Jonah is hopeless in this moment. Absolutely confident that he's going to die. He's sinking in the water so deeply that the seaweed is beginning to wrap itself around his head. And if you've ever swum in a lake and you've had this experience where maybe your leg starts to get caught up in the seaweed, you get that freaked out feeling in your body. Everything starts to flail. It's a strange, odd feeling. You feel like you're being pulled down. And imagine being so deep that the very same seaweed is now wrapping itself around his head. You can imagine him struggling, gasping with the last little breath that is left in his lungs as he's reaching for the surface and cannot attain it. His life is fainting away. He's actually beginning to drift into unconsciousness here. And with his last fleeting thought, he calls out to God for deliverance. And neither circumstance nor location affect the ability of God to respond to his children. Here is this wicked and disobedient prophet, self-righteous and arrogant, and so doubting in the goodness and the faithfulness of God that he presumes his only way out is death, He cries out to God, and God hears him. Here is Jonah having run from God now at the bottom of the body of water on the brink of death and through a giant fish. It means no one would have expected. God rescues him. And if you were to think of this whole text as a song, as a, as a, as a song to be sung, the chorus, the refrain of that song, the climax of the song is found in verses 8-9. through nine. And Jonah says this. It's a vow of his very life. He says those who pay regard to vain idols. Listen forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God moves Jonah in this moment from death to life, from wrath to forgiveness, from meaninglessness to purpose, And in experiencing the salvation that only belongs to the Lord, that only God Himself can grant, Jonah in this moment has come eye to eye with a grace that he had previously proclaimed but never personally experienced. And I wonder if you were to sit and honestly reflect, if you were to take a look at your own life, could the same be said of you? Has the grace of God, the unmerited favor, the unearned love, so captured your heart that you found a renewed purpose and meaning for your life? Has the wonder of your own desperate need and what Jesus did to fulfill it so enraptured your life that you, like Jonah, can say this? or have you so distilled and atomized and diminished the grace of God that you now just find it completely mundane? So ordinary and so boring and so presumed that it's just another piece of doctrine that you could explain or even teach without living in the new reality that it provides. Have you made God so ordinary, so explicable, and so small that you have forsaken your hope of steadfast love? Because I think it's amazing to note that whether it's Jonah in this moment of deliverance or David in the Psalms or Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, there is something about encountering the radical, unexpected, untamed, uncut grace of God that captivates the soul and stirs the emotions and engages the mind in worship. It creates a spontaneous exuberance that explodes from the Spirit in song. Why? Because in that moment, when you see the goodness, the gentleness, the power, and the grandeur of God's grace, you are experiencing the purpose for which you were created. I can think of moments in my life where where God worked in astounding, profound, incredible, miraculous ways. Where He met needs, and desires beyond what I could have asked for. Where He delivered me, or those that I love, through tremendous adversity. And there have been many times throughout my life where I've caught myself vacillating from tears of joy to moments of outright laughter because of how fully He handled what to me was out of control. Do you understand, brother and sister, that while those moments are often outliers and exceptions in our human experience, they actually come the closest to showing us what it's like to be in the perfected presence of our Savior. In many ways, it's the closest thing to glory that we will see this side of heaven. To have such a tangible experience of His love and His care and His affection that your whole being responds in praise. Jonathan Edwards said it this way. The love of Christ has a tendency to fill the soul with an inexpressible sweetness. It sweetens every thought. It bathes the soul with the dew of heaven. It begets a bright sunshine and diffuses the beginning of glory. Such a mind is a little heaven upon earth. And that is what God intends for your life. Not the mundane, weary, work-a-day approach that we take into our Christianity, devoid of fun or excitement or passion or joy, but that his grace is so tangible in our lives that we can't help but worship. And what quickly began in this beautiful poem ends just as quickly in a rather unceremonious fashion in verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And you can imagine in this moment Jonah squinting as his eyes adjust to the sunlight, and he begins to wipe the mess from his body three days and three nights spent in the belly of a fish. But friends, don't let that time span be lost on you, because there's all kinds of significance in it. Because some five to eight hundred years later, there would be another that was cast into a raging sea of God's wrath. But unlike Jonah, he had obeyed the Father perfectly. Nevertheless, for our sake, Jesus likewise descended into Sheol. Death and separation from God. He was separated from the presence of his beloved Father and was lost in darkness for three days and three nights. And he came as the final salvation for us. Whether whether we're the religious and self-righteous like Jonah, or the lost and the pagan like the Ninevites. And when he exited from the mouth of the tomb, he did so in final triumph over death and hell, and he ushered in a new life and a new purpose for his people. And what the story of Jonah shows us is that salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation for the religious, salvation for the wicked, for salvation for those who run from God, salvation for those who shake their fists at God. Jonah is in many ways a stand-in for us. And when he ends this by saying salvation belongs to the Lord, he's coming to the realization perhaps for the first time in his life that there is nothing he could have done to gain this salvation for himself. That there is no means that you can attain your own salvation. That your salvation is not a team effort between you and God where he, he reaches down to you and you reach up to Him and join hands and together you strain to pull yourself out of sin and destruction. No, rather, much like Jonah, you were sinking into the deep. Seaweed wrapped around your head. Entering into shield, totally helpless and unable to provide your own rescue. And into that scene, into the middle of your desperation, into the middle of your heartbreak and heartache, He reached down and snatched you up. And Jesus came to do exactly that. He pursued you when you were running away. He took on himself the wrath of God for your sin. He experienced the death that you deserved so that you could receive a new life and have your feet planted on dry ground, ready to obediently respond to the call that he put on your life. And that is what we remember as we come to the Lord's table. That Jesus came the perfect son of God to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. That he was willing to give his own body to be beaten and torn apart by human hands. That he gave his own blood, the precious, untainted blood to cover the sins for you and me. To wash us white as snow. To bring us into new life to extend adoption into his family to call us sons and daughters and so as we come to this table remember what it was that jesus did in those three days and three nights what he experienced on our behalf and our invitation for you is that if you're here today and you know jesus christ as your savior all of this is All of this is a relationship that you've experienced already with Christ. We would invite you and welcome you to come to this table and partake with us, to partake of the bread and the juice or the wine, to remember what it was that Jesus did for us and to to put it into remembrance, to have it standing there as a symbol, a reminder of who he is and what he's done. And likewise, I'd ask that if you're here and you don't know Jesus, please don't come to this table. Please take this time to consider what it is we've talked about, to read through the story of Jonah and see the grace of God in it, perhaps much like Jonah for the first time in your life. And so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to take a couple minutes of silence to spend time with our Father and to be with Him. And then we're going to come forward and begin to receive the elements when the music is played. I'm going to ask that you come up to the center aisle, and then I'm going to ask that you actually exit to my left, your right, as you leave today and go back around to your seat, and then please wait on taking those elements. We'll take that together. Would you pray with me? God, would we, would we learn the lesson of the book of Jonah? Would we remember what it was that you did on our behalf, that you rescued us from the deep, that you snatched us from hell, that you brought us back from our own rebellion into reconciliation with you. That for those who know Jesus Christ, we stand forgiven and redeemed and accepted in your sight. And God, may we never grow bored with your amazing grace. May it continue to enrich our understanding of who you are and challenge our preconceived notions and drive us in passion to the life that you've called us to live. God, would we remember your faithfulness and your love in pursuing all of us who were lost and dying and headed to hell? And as we come to this table, would we remember afresh as we partake in the elements what it was that Christ did for us, that he gave his body and his blood so that we could be washed white like snow? So God, give us these reminders as we spend time quietly in your presence.